0: hi this is emily gibson and this is caitlin mcfarland and we're the co-founders of atx television festival and you are listening to the tv campfire
1: so happy monday
0: happy monday i had three beverages at one point but now i only have two well i only have two and that feels like a loss. So I should go get a third one as soon as we leave here. Okay, great.
1: We are very well hydrated. <laughs> We're going back and forth between water, kombuchas, juices, coffees. You know, it's Monday. You got to just hydrated get it all into you. and
0: caffeinated. Yeah. And good gut health? Yeah, I'm into the gut health. I know you yeah. are. <laughs> we could do a whole podcast <laughs> on microbiome. I'm sure that would be really interesting <laughs> to everyone who loves television that's nope, listening right nope. now.
1: Okay, good thing you brought up everyone who loves television. Today, we are releasing our second panel from the Syndication Project track. This one is with the Television Academy. It's called Powerful TV. So we have been partners with the Television Academy four years, five years. So long, I can't even keep count. They're the best. Emily's Sorry. counting on her fingers. Uh, I feel like it's four. I feel like it's four years. Yeah, yeah. it's four years. I mean, we're going to go into fifth. So guys, just get on it. But the Television Academy is amazing with us because they obviously represent and honor everything television. But this particular panel has become a yearly panel and we adjust sort of what it's focusing on, but is about truly what the syndication project is about, which is power of story advocacy through storytelling, how stories can make a difference. And we partner this panel with the Television Academy Honors. We try to get shows that have been either honored in the past or honored this year, but there's a little bit of lacks there, maybe even nominees from previous years. So this year we have Elizabeth Finch from Grey's Anatomy, Sunil Nair, who is the co-showrunner of The Red Line, Dee Harris-Lawrence, showrunner and EP of David Makes Man, which we also screened at the mm-hmm. festival, and Justin Baldoni, who is Obviously an actor on Jane, but is also an EP director entrepreneur of My Last Days.
0: Have you seen that? Yes. Great. It, it have a large box of Kleenex that are. I was gonna say, did it, gut, so you? Did yes, did it, it is, gut you? Yes. it just gut you? It is so good. It is so well done. He talks a lot about his point in it. And his mm-hmm. point in it is not to make you cry, mm-hmm. although he knows that's going to be you know, yeah. just It is that a happens. movie, so like everybody, right? No, My Last Days is his
1: show. Oh, I was thinking You're of the thinking other. He did do five the Five Feet Apart. I was thinking Five Feet Apart, which you would also need a Kleenex uh, with. Yes. I yes. know what My Last Days is. Apologies, Justin. <laughs> but Five Feet Apart you should
0: also see and will also be gutted. Maybe have four <laughs> boxes of Kleenex when you watch Five Feet Apart. <laughs> um, but he tells these beautiful stories of people who, of all ages and all different backgrounds that are at the end of their life and what they're choosing to do, knowing that they're towards the end of their life. And it is in a way that you wouldn't think is so hopeful and so inspiring. Mm -hmm. And it really does. I mean, his mission is to kind of change the way you view life and change the way that you go about your day to day and how you view the world. And it does exactly that.
1: Well, and he's done so much and we plan to have him back. FYI, he was this was his first year at the festival and he was a dream, but. There's so many things we wanna talk about and wanted to do panels on this year that we couldn't, that could all fit into this panel particularly, because this panel could encompass anything that is about the power of television and the power of story and the responsibility of that. But he's did that whole campaign also on like masculinity and the representation of what that looks like and sort of redefining masculinity and toxic masculinity. And I'll say masculinity like 18 (laughs) more times. But I think it's so interesting that these shows that are represented both from writer-producer and actor-writer-director perspectives do what a lot of our panels hopefully do, which is it's not just about one very specific niche thing. It's how many things can you touch and how do you make that not just a singular episode or a singular character, but bring it back throughout a season, bring it back throughout an arc, pull a character in that can be representing more than one thing, mm-hmm. you get to be complicated, you get to be messy. Then there's the question that you and I talk about all the time that I think they touch in this. It's moderated by Maury McIntyre, the president of the Television Academy, but about what is questioning, what is our responsibility and where is that line?
0: And it's I, these panelists all have very strong views on responsibility and that they all come from very different backgrounds and they've all written things that I'm not going to say that they're not proud of, but that in retrospect, they've looked back on and said, I have to be responsible for putting that into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Sunil taught he ran revenge? revenge for a number of years and talks about his opinions now on what Revenge was and mm-hmm. what he was putting in the world. Elizabeth Finch, I don't want to tell too much of this story because it's a great story, but talks about someone on Twitter that sent her a list of all the female characters she had killed wow. during her like vampire writing days. Mm-hmm. and. Thinking of that and, like, what those things that you're putting out to the world and what that says and what that impact is. And I think, I mean, it's a discussion we should continue having as long as we have the festival because Mm -hmm. people very much differ on am I just putting out entertainment and what you do with it Mm -hmm. is. Which is a fair debate. It's it's, a
1: very debate. If you say, if you get into the debate, the part that always, like, stops me is, like, I don't want to give, you know, in a very violent way. Like, I don't want to give an out to like a mass shooting to say like, well, they watched a lot of like very violent things. It's the movie's fault. Like that responsibility is the, that's the line where I'm like, no, it's not. But then at the same time, you have to say that if you have a power to change hearts and minds one way, you have a power to change hearts and minds another. And as corny as it sounds, like I do absolutely believe that television more than any other medium because it's constant has that ability To change.
0: And uh, you're also dealing with a huge spectrum of people watching things Mm -hmm. that it's very easy for one person to watch something with a lot of violence, a lot of sex, a lot Mm -hmm. of drugs. Like, we we talk a lot on this podcast about euphoria because Mm -hmm. it's so great. And And it was the opening night. (laughs) So there you go. But, I mean, obviously the characters in Euphoria are quite a bit younger than I am. But I can watch Euphoria and not be interested in dabbling in any of the the things things that that they're doing. A teenager, even though it's showing the really rough side of all of these but things, and it's teenager, not glamorizing it.
1: And especially a teenager potentially struggling
0: with similar yes. things
1: and taps into that, like, oh, she's like me.
0: Yes. I'm going
1: to do what she's doing, even if she's being
0: hurt by it. And they talk about, I mean, 13 Reasons Why they talk about on this podcast, too, is another one where 13 Reasons Why I came out and everyone, it got a lot of accolades in talking, like, putting a discussion about suicide in the front line line because people don't talk about it. And uh, But then it also got a lot of backlash for sensationalizing it Mm -hmm. and glamorizing it. And some studies say teen suicide rates went down. Some studies say they went up. And then you're looking at the show going are they responsible? Like, right. can this show be responsible? Did this show really think they're putting something positive out there? Did they not care? Did they mean to glamorize yeah. it? Like, what, well, what are the intentions such a,
1: to? It's such a scary thing because, like, it is a very, I don't even know where I land on the debate, which is either. why I want to continue to have it definitely as long as we're having the festival, but even longer. Because truly, and I'm probably just repeating myself, but if I do so believe in representation being such a beautiful thing that can change somebody for all the good reasons in television, then you would think that on the other side, I have to believe the negative at the same time as an artist and creative expression and the idea that if you're pleasing everyone, you're pleasing no one, just not even responsibility level, but in what a great story is and what a great character is and doing something different. Well, then I absolutely don't believe like, it's the artist's responsibility to either—it's almost the thing where they're, like, you can't believe you saved the life because then you have to believe that, like, it's possible that if somebody does something that you're responsible for that. Like, it's all just too big. So, you know, freedom of speech is, like, a part of that, too. Like, oh, well, I said something on Twitter. Like, what's my responsibility? Who? And then you have to ask yourself, who are you? Like, if, any, if your show is the most popular thing, do you have a higher responsibility than if, like, four people are watching your show? Also, and that's because <laughs> Sunil
0: talks about the fact that he keeps doing network TV because— Net network more TV people is still reach. reaching yeah, yeah. the most people. And the red line reached a lot more people mm-hmm. than something not on smaller network. But. Yeah. No, no, revenge uh, <laughs> rectify. Yes, people talk about, exactly. I love rectify, but yes. like not anybody watched it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. But yeah, and that obviously is a difference too. Mm-hmm. And we uh, you and I talk a lot, not on this podcast mm-hmm. in our other conversations, about intention and projecting intention on people too. Mm-hmm. And I one of the things that I do think is a responsibility of people is you kind of have to, when you're making a show, what is your intention in this? Right. Because I do think that there is something in that of these panelists talk about that sometimes intentions go wrong and you (laughs) have a great intention of like, I'm going to showcase this really hard subject because I want people to talk about it. And it ends up being turned around and sensationalized in a way that they didn't mean, Right. but it is really looking at I'm putting this show out into the world. Mm -hmm. What is my intention in putting this show out? Is it purely entertainment? And then you kind of got to look at all sides of that. Is this violence that I'm putting or, you know.
1: Well, because then you've got the idea of like, sometimes in that pure entertainment, it is escapism. But like, what is the representation within that escapism? Like, if it's something, and I don't think anybody on this panel, none of their credits truly represent this, but like, it's funny can you even get away with something? I'm trying to even think about what it would be at this point because I usually my escapism I always say is younger, mm-hmm. but even younger is saying things. Yes, like it's talking yeah. about ageism, it's talking about like all of these things. But I'm wondering what the show is that like is truly just lighthearted, like one in in one or what? The, I guess it's reality stuff. Well, like yeah,
0: because really, ultras. I mean, Friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friends was as far as I mm-hmm. yeah. and it was never really trying to say anything. No. Certain time of your life, I guess,
1: where yeah. your friends or your family is what they always say, but that's not like a lesson or anything. Yes, but, but it was pure
0: entertainment,
1: mm-hmm. pure. Still
0: watch it. It's yes. Great. Oh, absolutely. It brings such joy. Whereas,
1: like, Gilmore Girls is also still sort of saying something, like, about like those relationships and mother and daughter and everything like that.
0: Oh, it's very interesting. But it is also the question of, like, when people create these shows, are they trying to say something mm-hmm. or are they just. I, want to I, tell like, this I story. just want to tell the story about yeah. three generations of the females in this family. Yeah.
1: Well, we hope you guys enjoy this panel. Stay tuned at the end. There's a s'more uh, interview <laughs> with Emily interviewing Justin Baldoni and
0: Elizabeth Finch. I do have to say, I had scheduled to do a s'more podcast mm-hmm. with Justin. And so I was preparing for that. And after this panel went up, I think I'd met him briefly the night before. Basically, I think we've talked about this, that sometimes we schedule interviews short s'mores podcast with people that we definitely want to make sure that we get to sit down and talk to. Mm -hmm. Justin Baldoni is one of those people. I think that he has so many interesting things to say, and I really want to get insight from him on so many of these topics. And I was like, I'm going to take these 20 minutes and sit down and ask Mm -hmm. him all the questions. Also had questions about Jane the Virgin. ending. may have talked a little bit too long about that, but you know, what can you do? I was very sad and excited about all the things happening. But after the panel, he was talking to Elizabeth Finch and all of the night, all these questions for her too. That yeah. I basically invited her in that moment to be part of the s'more panel. And she very graciously accepted. That's so cool. And came on because they were still chatting. So I was and like, they well, were let's meeting. Just keep There's
1: chatting in here at Podcast I, HQ. I listened to it a little bit. They like exchanged numbers. Like they met for the first time and had heard about each other. So yes. that's the magic of the festival. People who wanted to meet could meet and do things on the fly. So make sure at the end of this panel you stick around to listen to that little, that little s'more.
2: This
3: is actually, I think, the uh, fourth or fifth year that the Television Academy has here, been here presenting a panel such as this one. Um, and that's because we just so strongly believe that there is no more effective medium than television with the power to impact uh, social change. Um, you know, most of you probably know us as the organization that hands out the Emmy Awards this year on Fox, September 22nd. Please tune in. Um, <laughs> But actually, um, a week and a half ago, we gave it an award that is really dear to my heart, which is called Television Academy Honors. And Television Academy Honors is there really to celebrate work that has a message, that is trying to make people think, trying to make society better. And so um, that's part of what uh, today's panel is about as well. We have a lot of uh, creators, showrunners, executive producers who are all doing that. And we are so thankful for them to be here, Uh, thankful to them for being with us this morning. So let me go ahead and bring them out. Uh, First, we have from David Makes Man, showrunner and executive producer D. (laughs) Harris-Lawrence. Next, uh, from The Red Line, co showrunner and executive producer Sunil Nair. Um, From Grey's Anatomy, writer and co executive producer Elizabeth Finch. And then from My Last Days, and one of the recipients actually of this year's Television Academy honors, please welcome creator and executive producer Justin Baldoni. So I should just mention very quickly uh, uh, Rabia uh, from Atypical was supposed to be with us as well this morning. Unfortunately, she got ill, so could not be here. Um, And I think actually Krista had originally been scheduled to be in Elizabeth's spot, but we are very happy to have Elizabeth here, who actually wrote the episode that they are uh, going to be airing later today um, that deals specifically with uh, sexual assault and consent and just phenomenal writer. So thank you again all for being here. I want to start actually with a quote from one of you. Um, This is a quote, actually, that Justin gave to us um, when we came to talk to you a little bit about My Last Days. Uh, And you said, we have the responsibility, in this industry especially, to create content that makes us want to be better people. And I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on that, and then I'd love to hear everybody else's thoughts, too.
4: Um, First of all, thank you for putting this together. And and Bravo and thank you to the Academy for actually creating an award that uh, helps those of us in our industry aspire to receive like that type of recognition um, because if that award didn't exist, we would always just be going for the the same thing. so oh, you'd uh, still really, be doing
3: this come on <laughs> well,
4: I might, but nobody would ever know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I kind of I just have always believed that it's very easy to go after the lowest common denominator. And it's very easy to go after things that are popular and things that you know will make money. And in an industry like ours that is so run off of fear um, in a lot of different areas, I just noticed uh, as I was really in my 20s um, that there was so much content out there that made me feel better about being a worse person um, than content that, is, that made me want to become better. And I think that content that makes us want to be better is also confronting, and it can be uncomfortable. Um, but I find I believe that we're finally reaching this apex where uh, being comfortable and the uncomfortable is is seen as a positive thing, and growth is seen as a positive thing. And I just think that we have such a tremendous opportunity to lead the way, not in a preachy, heavy-handed way, but um, you know, we, ha- we are so blessed to do what we do. And if we can ignite a spark in a, in a young girl or boy. Who maybe sees themselves on TV for the first time and then they can take that spark and do something and change, you know, change the world. And, you know, at the end of the day, we can look back at our lives and say we did something. And I think that's the power that we have.
3: Great. Anybody else?
4: Yeah. I, I could not agree
5: more.
3: Sunil, <laughs> so you, you actually even talk, said yeah. you spent years on revenge yeah, at the yeah, end of the day.
5: Yeah. I mean it's it's you know, I ran Revenge for the last two seasons of that show and it was a great experience and I had a wonderful time doing it, but sort of I reflected upon what I had done um, and really realized that I had helped put eighty nine hours of a show where it was just rich white people being awful to each other so they could be happy. Um, and that is not and it's exactly what you're talking about is it was easy to do. It doesn't mean that it should have been done. And it really was a wake-up call for myself thinking I have a responsibility to be able to answer for what it is I am doing on a television screen. Um, And so it really changed my approach to it, exactly what Justin was just saying, which is the onus is on us to not be like, well, that's fine to do, as opposed to it's not okay. and, And the representation is critical, and the ideas that you're putting forth are powerful. And so when you have the wrong things up there, it sort of seeps into a person's reality in ways that... I don't even know the power of. And, but I wanted to sort of start understanding it. And so, why I've really sort of changed the way that I approach it is to use network TV and exactly what Justin was saying to do the work it actually is obligated to um, and the work that we're obligated to do for these audiences that choose to watch it. And which is one of the reasons I keep staying in network because. As hard as the fights are, you can reach the people who need to be hearing these conversations. And again, like you said, not to be preached to, not to be polemic about it, but to be conversant about it and to contextualize the human beings on the screens that they're seeing. Because not only is it a young boy or girl seeing themselves on screen for the first time, it's a young boy or girl seeing other people on screen for the first time and understanding that they too exist and they too have similarities and experiences that they can share.
6: (laughs) I had someone, um, somebody on Twitter who... I don't know why they decided they hated me, but just they did. Um, Twitter. Um, <laughs> because Twitter. And they somehow tallied up, I had spent six years on various vampire shows, um, and somehow tallied up uh, every woman that I killed on television uh, and put it in like a file and sent it to me. And I'm like, first of all, I would love the time that they have. (laughs) That would be awesome. And at first I was like, okay, that's weird and creepy and why are they doing that? And, I, I, you know, Twitter, I'm going to put it on a shelf. And I kept saving that list and I kept going back to it. And I was looking at the body count and I was looking at all of the people. And then I was like remembering every way on television I had killed someone. Um, and all the terrible ways that I did it. And I realized like that was the world. It was vampire world. But also I was contributing to it. And I was not contributing to the balance. I was not contributing, you know, in the world of body count. The fact that it was so many women in so many different ways. I was like, this is not as much as these shows are fun. And I loved the people that I work with. And I love the shows themselves. I was responsible for that body count. And-, and for those ways. And that's how I was using my creativity was to figure out how I can Um, kill someone in the most interesting creative way and that was not who I wanted to be and not the content that I wanted to put out now if someone dies on grays at least we're trying to fix them (laughs) I can't say my body count is that different but at least the intent is very clear that we're trying to work on it we're not using them as expendable people to just body drop that's great So thank you, whoever that random person is that (laughs) tweeted me. You might be here. I don't know.
2: (laughs) So they actually did use their time for good. (laughs) Um, I got into this business because I wanted to change the narrative. Um, I wanted to, again, see people that were more like me. Growing up, I realized after I was watching a few things, it's like I wasn't seeing people who reflected me Um, as far as drama. There were a lot of comedies. There weren't as many dramas. Um, and humor can be had in drama as well. Um, my very first show was New York Undercover. That kind of changed a, it made a cultural shift, actually. Um, they broke a lot of songs. They, it was a, uh, they had a lot of cop shows at that point, And these were two, because they were two, um, they call me hip hop detectives, whatever that is. But that was just, basically, they were trying to make a difference in their own neighborhoods. So that was fantastic. Um, It is a challenge in this business to continue to be able to change the narrative with that because a lot of times, you know, there may be one character um, and the shows that you get picked on as a person of color... um, they sometimes were like, okay, well, we don't have a person of color on the show. We don't have a black character on the show. And then what does that matter? I maneuver through all different types of, you know, worlds. So, um, it's interesting that question and, and to be able in this time during peak television to do something you are so passionate about. Um, I think we are going in the right direction, um, because it allows, because of streaming, we are reaching far more people, um, from around the world now. I I used to think that it was very local to U.S., um, but it is very around the world. I mean, and people talk about Netflix, but a lot of people from South America, um, which I found fascinating, they actually consume Netflix like in a major way. So um, it is a, it is a, it is great to be a part of that you know shift right now. Yeah, it's great.
3: I wonder if we could talk a little bit as creators, writers, producers about how far that responsibility goes. Um, Netflix's 13 Reasons Why, which I can pick on a little bit because we also gave it a Television Academy Honors, uh, was praised a little bit for starting a conversation about suicide, but then it was also criticized pretty heavily for possibly glamorizing suicide. So, what is your responsibility towards ensuring balance or accuracy when you tell these types of stories? How do you not? sensationalize something when you're trying to dramatize it? And how do you balance authenticity versus telling a really good narrative?
5: I mean, I guess I will say that the responsibility is all ours if we're creating the content. And and to me, and I can just use the red line as my most recent example of of... How we approached it, which is whenever we started any conversation about any of the ideas that we wanted to put in the show, we reached out and found human beings that we could talk to about it. Um, Because the assumption that you can Google a story and you can get it all right is not correct anymore. And if you're going to, you know, because people think, oh, it's an immigration story. I know immigration stories. Well, you don't, because there's millions of them. And if you know an LGBTQ story. And so we really did a lot of outreach to really help contextualize, like, there was an Organization called Color of Change, which I don't know, they're a remarkable organization and we partnered with them a lot on the content just from even ideas of images that might be triggering to certain members of our audience because, you know, you can easily do a thing where you want it to suddenly someone's making a threat to the young black woman on the show and we thought, okay, we want that to be part of our story and we have ideas of what we think that threat might be, but we don't know if these ideas are triggering and in fact will actually impact an audience in a very negative way. And so we connected with them and they really helped walk us through the correct way to have these conversations so that we neither desensitize nor trigger our audience in doing it. And so the big thing for me really is, and and working with organizations, and you were just saying the same thing, is make those calls, have those conversations, and find those people because you will find, at least we found, those human beings are dying to come in and tell you their stories so you can get those stories right. And it's a really... It's a fulfilling conversation, and they're hard, and they are incredibly informative. I mean, I feel like my year on the red line was like I got to take a graduate seminar in how to be a better human being, um, and I feel better for it, and I think the show was better for it too.
2: Yeah, I ju- i am well. You, hopefully, everyone would check it out. But um, I just uh, executive produced a show called David Makes Man that's going to air in August. Um, on, oh, fantastic! People came to the panel. Yes, um, <clears throat> that was written by Ter- uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney, uh Terrell co-wrote uh, *Moonlight*, that was loosely based on his um, life, and *David Makes Man* is also um, a part of his life. When um, he came to the juncture at 13 years old, um, there are decisions where you can go either way, and that's what this young um, African American boy is at at his t- at his time at this time in his life. Um, as he's going through a childhood trauma. Um, And what I love about Terrell's script, after I read it, you know, sitting there, I had to read it twice. um, And the first thing I said to him was like, I am David. I am the female David. And I realized in his honesty, which I truly love, it's it's what he, and, and he goes into such deep places that they are universal in how I'm sure a lot of people, you know, feel or what they've gone through. And that's what we try to do with the show. Um, It may be unapologetically black, as we all say, but it has universal themes. Um, So I think that's how we um, approach as far as the responsibility. I think the honesty and the um, authenticity in showing it in that way, but showing all levels in this is how you may have assumptions and stereotypes of how these people live. The single mother who sometimes people think, you know, they're, you know, abandoning their kids. No, they're like working their asses off, trying to provide in every way um, and basically living paycheck to paycheck. You know, there's a pact between this 13-year-old boy and his mom. You take, you, ha- you know, you um, keep your end in getting to a really good school. I'll keep my end. And that's a struggle because you have to, like, try and keep that up at every turn. Um, and, you know, showing that the everyday life, you know, in that little less than middle class is still, their living and they still have a good time. So it's basically showing all those, you know, colors, you know, in those communities.
6: On Grace, we have, I mean, we have the social responsibility that we take very, very seriously in terms of messaging. We also have med- a whole medical component in terms of wanting to communicate medicine that is authentic, that is but is also not so terrifying that someone won't go take care of themselves. That they're you know exposing them to conditions and diseases and to any kind of procedures that exist. I mean, look, we truncate things for time because I don't know anyone who's ever gotten a scan and gotten the results 30 seconds later, <laughs> like in the history of medicine. Um, But, you know, so that might be, that might be truncated, but we work with so many people, um, so many doctors and so many things about the messaging, about the actual medicine, so that we're not presenting a cure for something that does not exist. We're not putting out false hope or false narratives out there, because that can be just as damaging to people. It's, you know, when we're doing certain procedures, there are certain things that are, like we had a, we had a, MRI scan that is, or radiation that involved a whole mask and a whole thing where someone's locked down and, and doing it and we had a lot of discussions about this is really scary oh. and is this going to, um, is someone going to watch this and hear that they have to get this treatment and say no because I saw it on Grays yeah. and it was too terrifying and I'm not going to do it. So these are things that we think about in addition to representation, and in addition to the humanity that we put out there in the messaging, it's You know, and thankfully we have all the resources in terms of like the social groups, but also the medical groups that are talking about no, if you put it on screen, people are going to freak out about that. Maybe you don't want to do that. And that's something we think about every day because it's people's livelihoods and their health. And that's not something we're screwing around with. Real quick, amazing, by the way.
4: Um, In response to the, it was funny, I was talking about this yesterday. Um, with Sarah, who's one of my executives. And the 13 Reasons Why thing was really an interesting phenomenon. And I've thought a lot about the responsibility of how we tell stories. And I think, you know, there's so, let's be very real. It's so, hi, it's, that's, nobody look at her, nobody look at her, nobody look at her, nobody look at her. her. We're all very empathetic in here. We never want to be that person. Nobody look at her. We're just going to keep going. Wow. I have never been this person. But I have, and that's why. Um, um, But we can all agree how, and excuse my choice of words, fucking hard it is to get a show on the air. So I think part of what I said earlier about this being a fear-based business is there's also the fear in... A lot of us creators and writers and producers to not screw up the chance to get something on the air so what i think happens right and if you dissect this and this is a much longer conversation the people that are in charge of actually putting it on the air generally all look a certain way uh, which we were talking about earlier Um, and then those of us that are trying to put something on the air also have families and of course are. Our relevancy is tied to the success of our last project, which is our currency and our quotes, and we have, we have to take care of ourselves. And I think what ends up happening is that sometimes a good intention can get lost in the fear across the board, the fear of the creator and the showrunner and the producer and the writer, and then the fear of the network. And I believe a lot of good intention things end up becoming very bad for the world and that happens because the intention gets lost and muddled in our in our desperate drive for success which is an overall problem so when you look at 13 reasons why i think that could have been avoided because i think it was a 1% issue right if you take the entire series and and you reverse the way that that scene was shot and you make it terrifying yeah. then suddenly there is no glam like glamorizing a doing this thing and maybe there's a decrease in teen suicides versus an uptick. But to do that it means confronting the issue and bringing people in and the risk that they're going to tell you what you don't want to hear. And we all get attached as as creatives to what we think we think is best what we want to put on to oh but I felt this and I saw this and this person said it was good but if there's a group of people, that are out there that can prevent you from making a dire mistake, but it requires you to change your entire idea or to not go forward with something, that's a very confronting thing. And I think that if we can get to, as an, in, as an industry, a place where we can be so detached from something that we say, you know what, if we actually make that show, that's going to be bad. Even though I'm going to make a million dollars, and even though I'm going like, to be able to put my kid through college, that's going to hurt a lot of people. So let's drop that and move forward to something else, even after the network said yes. And unless we're going out there and asking the communities, which we're trying to represent what they think about this, because eventually it's going to happen on Twitter. It's there. Right? We're not living in, we're not, this isn't 15 years ago. I mean, we're going to get the response the second it goes up. Focus groups, test groups, we're all going to get it. But if you do it in the, in, in, in the process beforehand and you ask the communities, you ask the people that survived a suicide attempt what this makes them feel, not that they didn't, but we don't know. Then I think we're gonna get answers that maybe we don't like, but can help us create more meaningful and powerful television.
3: Thank you. Uh, Dee, I, I love that you uh, described David Bakes Man as unapologetically black. Mm-hmm. I think that's fantastic. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about developing a black coming of age story in a time when not only uh, is the hashtag Black Lives Matter still very relevant, but even the hashtag Living While Black seems necessary. Oh my
2: God. <laughs> don't get me started on The Living Well Black. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting. I mean, this, again, as, as uh, Terrell's loosely, um, based on Terrell's story. Um, but it's interesting when we gathered all the writers, uh, What and I was very big on when I became a showrunner, that I always going to have a safe environment. You can say anything. There are no you know, bad ideas. Um, if you put someone, if you don't agree with the other idea, make sure you have something that comes up. We, from day one, or like day one or two, just got in there and it was all of our different um, ideas and backgrounds and uh, of our lives were poured into, you know, going into, I don't even think Terrell was, you know, ready for, you know, that. Um, and it was amazing in how we constructed um, the stories, which he had, you know, had the skeleton of and a lot of, but it was all the different colors that we um, painted on it um and being able and again um showing this young boy as not black white whatever but human and what he is going through as this young man um code switching and um and code switching is by putting on different masks as you go through your you know your worlds of dealing with the dope boys in your neighborhood and then going to the school um uh where you're in a magnet class and you're only one of three <coughs> black kids um and showing the truth and the authenticity in that. Um, And, you know, trying to, and he also, what he has with his, um, he takes care of his younger brother, he makes sure that he's at school, all this responsibility on this young boy, and he's 13. Um, And we realize as young kids ourselves and all the responsibility that you have um, in these neighborhoods, but also wanted to show the black excellence that happens. We have, you know, this young girl who dances. They're singing the again the power of imagination, is amazing. That we're knock on wood, it would pull off some of these things that you know we kind of like go in between. So you understand what is going on in David's head. A lot of it is his POV. He also has superpowers seeing the world around him, um, and it's been amazing all of our you know screenings. Um, different people um, and majority of them not black coming to us and telling us I relate it to David I understand this character and that is amazing you know within itself um, so it's kind of like living while black we're hoping that it's like now you understand we're living and we're human I mean you know what I mean it's, it's, I'm just beyond somebody's like barbecuing the other day I'm like really and really and they got a gun pulled out on them um, this couple, I'm amazed. And I don't understand. I don't. It's the 21st century. It's
3: kind of appalling, really. Uh, Sunil, actually, Redline kind of addresses that as well. You have a, a black doctor who gets shot while just trying to buy milk. Uh, your show addresses kind of the justice system and, and just that the, the fallout of that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about topicality. Elizabeth Gray's Anatomy, you just tackled sexual assault and consent this year in an episode that, as I understand it, was developed kind of specifically in response to the Christine Blasey Ford testimony against Brett Kavanaugh. I wonder if you both could talk a little bit about how you balance topicality when you're telling a story versus timelessness in telling that story, uh, and how those stories were developed. Elizabeth, you want to start? You
6: know, it's uh, unfortunately, with rape culture being what it is, I don't think we're worried about um, the timelessness of it, which is an awful thing to have to say. Um, you know, we wrote a, I wrote a consent, a story that focused on consent, and, and it's atypical because we usually start from character first, but we were just so shaken by Dr. Ford's testimony. And by the response that everyone seemed to be having on the news about questioning her memory, questioning if she got it right, questioning so much of it. And the message that was put out into the world to so many people, like especially to younger people, that consent was somehow irrelevant. Um, And that made all of our collective blood boil. And Krista was directing, uh, Christopher Arnoff, who's the showrunner, uh, was directing another episode that I wrote and just turned to me and said, we have to do something. Because we were watching, the, everyone was like watching the testimony on their phones and crying and then shooting an episode and doing this. And, uh, you know, our our priority was about telling as many points of view on on rape and consent as we possibly could and from the women from a woman's point of view there are so many stories that are out there about rape and consent that are about the man about the man's reaction to his wife who wants to go take revenge because someone hurt his wife there's the cop there's the dead corpse in the corner that's just sitting there as a prop for the cop to figure out and you know get figure out how he can solve this case because it really super matters to him and there aren't those conversations about how long trauma lasts and how much it can impact someone. We had, uh, you know, there are people that are walking around with this giant hole of empathy and don't know and don't understand why someone 10 years later might still be upset or might still be triggered by a race, by being raped. And if you can't understand that, then you can't have empathy for somebody. So. We weren't so worried about the topicality of it because we know that we knew that it was going to be specific to these characters, and it was very much a part of a journey for our character to figure out who her mother was and to find out that she was a product of rape that that's that so there was a connection to the actual character, so it wasn't ripped from the headlines. But then just the specificity of. Having so many women on staff and having so many people contribute and tell their stories and do it, then we didn't really have to worry about it feeling like it was a message show. It was about our people and where they find their humanity and where they find their empathy.
3: Yeah, and Sunil, I think uh, Caitlin was it yesterday who said that your your show actually, the red line, was based off of a play from ten years ago. Yeah. Even.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think, and you hit the nail on the head with what you were saying is that sadly timelessness is nothing. You know, when we talk about living while black, it's like it is unbelievable and totally believable. I Like those words mean the same thing now, <clears throat> which is really sad. Yeah. Um, and so all of these things that we're talking about, all these things that we're addressing, and thank you for having us and for these festivals like this, is there is this groundswell of human beings who want to tell these stories. And I think part of like what you're talking about with your episode and what we do with The Red Line is I think what's critical is like other shows I've worked on, you get into it with your, with your studio execs or your network execs over something, some detail, and you fight because you believe in it in this moment of drama. But if you lose the fight, you lost that fight. But we need to put ourselves in places where we cannot lose the fight. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the things that we're trying to do are, and we would have these conversations on the red line, and again, I want to say the network was incredibly supportive of the show. It was not a contentious experience for the most part, but there were times when the attitudes were different based on sort of the perspectives of the human beings on one side of a call and the perspective of the humans on the other side of the call. And where we sat was we can't lose this fight. Like, this fight is either we win it or you fire us. Because if we put something irresponsible on television, it is going to matter in a way it didn't matter to us, or at least I will speak for myself. It didn't matter to me before when I was doing Revenge or Body Approved or CSI Miami, which are those, you know, again, I don't feel super great about a lot of those things. Um, but it really is they're like, they're highly I think watched. Part, yeah, but part, what's that? They're highly watched. They are highly watched. Exactly. <laughs> That's maybe the price. Exactly. Which is which is shocking and not shocking. Um, but, uh, I think that's the thing is for those of us on the creative side to put ourselves in a position where we cannot lose the fights, where we cannot wilt to the conversation because we have a responsibility for the way. I mean, again, what you're talking about is so critical is you can't lose those fights when you're having those conversations and when you're getting the notes that actually damage people. (laughs) Um, And I'm not saying that happened all the time. Again, I want to make that clear. But there were certain times where it's not like we're going to give up because I can't live with myself and we couldn't live with ourselves if we did it. And so I think that's the idea. And the timelessness, sadly, I mean, where we're at right now, you're like, God, we've moved the needle nowhere on so many of these things. And it is really depressing. But then these communities are really hopeful and, and struggle is hope. And I think that that's the way we need to approach it at this point in time.
3: And do you see yourself able to take that into your next show, All Rise,
5: which seems to be really ripe
3: for that kind of...
5: Yeah, I mean, now I've, since Redline, you know, is a a one-off, as we've just found out last week. Uh, I've actually co-running this new show called All Rise for CBS, which is about the LA courthouse, but it's a cast of seven people. Five of them are women. Five of them are people of color. It's really critical to us to see the victim and to see the the person and not the crime to, you know, I mean, I was saying this yesterday, how it's it's interesting to think that Perry Mason was a defense attorney. And so the heroes were the people he was representing. And then over the course of time, the heroes became the prosecutors. So the defendants were the villains who needed to be put away. And I think, again, that's a slow change of narrative that people don't really understand. I didn't understand until I was told. And I thought... Oh, right. And so this is a show that hopefully we're going to change it. And it's a procedural. So CBS, I think, understands this much better than they did the red line. But they're also supporting the idea of getting social justice onto the network, which is why I'm thrilled to be a part of this show. I brought some of the red line people over with me. And so we're hoping that we have yet another crack at this of really bringing these conversations to the fore and making sure defendants aren't just the person who committed the crime, but a person who happened to be accused of a crime.
2: Very nice. Excellent. I'm watching some, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Justin,
3: uh, in some ways, really, My Last Days is a little bit the opposite of topical because no one wants to talk about dying. None of us really want to address it. We don't really want to face it. Why was it important for you to actually go in and talk to these people to, to show how these people live in the face of dying?
4: Um, for those of you that don't know, My Last Days is a, is a documentary series that uh, started on YouTube. Um, Nobody would make it, and for $4,000 an episode, I gave up uh, acting in a year of my life to tell these stories. Put it on YouTube. People said nobody would watch it, and it became a very watched show on YouTube with one of the episodes getting like 14 or 15 million views. It was was 22 minutes long, and this was seven years ago. And so in the age of cat videos and things that were going viral, this young 17-year-old boy's story of... You know, living in the face of adversity and, you know, making music was enough to... So it was kind of a case study that taught me um, that we are hungry for a reminder. You know, one of the Arabic words words for human, san, is one of the translations, is they who forget. And if you think about that, you know, one of the oldest languages, uh, and we think about human beings and insane, and we, we quite literally forget. We forget everything. And some things we... On purpose, forget. Um, And forgetting is a good thing sometimes because, you know, there's so much pain and trauma that we all live with and we forget. And there's also great things that we forget. And one of the things I think we on purpose forget is the fact that one day we're not going to be here anymore. Because, again, I talk about uncomfortability and finding the comfort. And I I was raised in the Baha'i faith. And there's a quote in the Baha'i faith that says, I've made death a messenger of joy for thee wherefore dost thou grieve and i just was thinking like how can death be joyful death can't ever be joyful if we don't appreciate or live a life that we feel proud of at the end of our lives you're only going to have regret so if you made revenge for the next 80 years right it's that kind of thing that you're that we have to like think about our lives and be active in our lives and so for me it was well can we tell a story that can inspire especially younger generations of young people, of young women, of young boys to confront their mortality and realize that tomorrow isn't guaranteed or next year isn't guaranteed. And if it wasn't guaranteed, would you change your behavior? Would you change the way you treat people? Would you stay mad at people? Um, So for me, it was an experiment. And also selfishly, like I needed it. And I still need it. I've made 25 of these stories now. And I, I, I'm constantly brought back to if I'm in a fight with someone or if I'm mad at someone or if my wife and I are having a heated argument, like, wait a second, this doesn't really matter. So it helps you come back and remember. And yeah, nobody wanted to touch it. Seven years ago, the idea of like, are you out of your mind? Um, and of course, then I, I fell back into acting and Jane the Virgin happened and I you know, talked to Mark Pedowitz at the CW and Rick Haskins and they said, we believe we should put this on air. And you know, four years in, and that we actually we we aired before Jane the Virgin and beat Jane the Virgin which was the weirdest thing <laughs> so like and then of course getting your incredible honor uh, so it's and, and it's a now inspired two films so my I've directed a film called Five Feet Apart that um, uh, just came out on DVD after it was released and um, thank you and sp- literally inspired by one of the girls whose stories we told on The CW who had cystic fibrosis who you guys just did a story about cystic fibrosis which I think is very cool which was never represented ever on television, And then my next film is actually about that young boy, Zach. And we're just watching this, we're watching the audience change. And we're watching the people in our community change and be willing to take more risks. And if those of us that are here can find ways to bring this meaningful content to television and to film and show the people that are writing the checks that only care about the bottom line that they can also make money right? And if the audiences sit in seats, then we collectively can start to create more content like this that years and years ago would have been laughed at. And so for me, it was about all of those things, but it was a long journey that required testing it and hope people liking it and taking risks. And also at the end of the day, just trusting that this was an entire group of people whose stories were just never told. Um, and believing that the audience is really good at being human and that we can trust them, you know? So
3: it's really interesting that you you chose, I don't know if you chose it, but that, you know, as you just said, this is more a documentary feature as opposed to a narrative drama. I wonder if there are some stories that are better told in reality, some stories that are better told with kind of the facade of fiction to them. Anybody have any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, you know, I think there's room for both, actually. <laughs> You know, um, because a lot of times, like he said, he started out with documentary series, and now he's about to turn them into fiction because sometimes you know the reality for some people kind of hits too close to home or it's too hard for them to watch, but you give them something where they're entertained, get them to lean in, and then you hit them with the truths that they can you know kind of swallow it better you know?
4: we we so at my company Wayfair, we call that chocolate covered broccoli. <laughs> exactly. Literally, like, like there's a picture of a piece of broccoli <laughs> dipped in chocolate on our website, which is that idea. It's the medicine of mm-hmm. the dog food. It's, you can look at it a lot of different ways. Yes. But the, the entry point to whatever it is that we're all talking mm-hmm. about has to be something, of course, that is commercially viable yes. in some way. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there's an interesting way. Of, I think there's a need for both, right? I mean, we're now consuming podcasts and documentaries more than we ever have in the history of television and movies, right? Mm-hmm. Documentaries are becoming cool. Yes. Mm-hmm. Among millennials and like a younger generation, like, can you imagine? Mr. Rogers,
2: Mr. Mr. Rogers Rogers is cool. (laughs) I mean, come on. I mean, that's major. And found out, like, yes, he is the nicest man in the world, and the compassion. I'm like, and that is one of like, that was like one of the number one things on Netflix, right? For like a long time. I mean,
4: but you look and you look back and you're like, how did I not realize how amazing he was? Because we were all so used to it. And also, we're looking at our culture and our climate and saying, can he, like, we need Mr. Rogers. Exactly. We need Mr. Rogers. Like, so it's a need, you know? And uh, so, yeah.
3: Well, I think that Grey's Anatomy has kind of the soap aspects, but that you're able to get your message in. I think Caitlin yesterday said, Redline, you Trojan-horsed some of your stuff in to get it onto broadcast.
6: I mean, to me, I I can tell when I'm watching a story, when I'm, when I'm watching a narrative where people don't know what they're talking about. Like, I don't care. Document. Like, I love the new wave of that. Every one of like every day. It was like who's what new Netflix documentary is happening. Like who has a new one? Like what's the new cool one? Mm -hmm. But whether it's, Fiction, whether it's documentary, I can tell when someone is speaking a truth, I can when I'm watching something. And going back to what you were talking about, about like engaging in other communities and research, if you don't know what you're talking about, whether it's topical or not, I know when I'm being told the truth. I know when it, it's from a point of view of a lived human experience. And I think that that's what people are craving, whether it's the format doesn't necessarily matter to me, if it's based on a true story, if it's a true story, if it's coming from somebody's heart like you know you sit in any writer's room and I know that they just put an argument from their wife on television and when I'm watching that show I can tell that it's lived and true and <laughs> things are covered up for you know <laughs> people's sake and to eat, protect the living to protect <laughs> to, to protect everyone but like even the even the silliest things like I I walked into a room and was talking about how um someone once told me that they loved me and I showed up at my door to tell me they loved me, and I said, I'm sorry, I have to go get milk. And I left <laughs> and went, and then I stood in the grocery store buying milk and called my best friend, freaking out about it. And she's like, Where are you? I'm like, At the grocery store getting milk. He's like, I think he knows you didn't actually need to go get milk. I'm like, Well, I'm not a liar. And I ended up just talking about it. And it's the silliest thing, but like that ended up on an episode of Gray's because somebody like said they love them, and she freaked out and she left. And it's like, it, it's, a great story. it's the weirdest moment in the world, and you know the person who said that was not very happy with me that it ended up on TV. But the, like, even. <laughs> but whatever, that's a whole other story. But it's whether there are these deeper conversations and and social uh, around social responsibility, or if it's just a moment of humanity where somebody is faced with love and freaks out and does something absurd in that moment. I can tell when I'm watching another show and it just seems done, it seems scripted, it seems that, or if I'm watching someone's story.
3: Thank you. Um, Justin, I'm gonna throw a question to you that is not about my last days, and I'm not putting you on the spot, anybody else can answer this, but uh, uh, since you are part of uh, an experience called Jane the Virgin, which unfortunately is ending, Netflix just canceled One Day at a Time. Um, uh, Stars, fortunately, has renewed Vita. But why is it that uh, we're not seeing a lot of Latinx stories on television? Why are they so rare?
4: Well, I don't think I'm the best person to answer, mm. considering I'm not yep. actually technically uh, Latino. Um,
3: You're adjacent because of James. I'm, a, of I'm, I'm like,
4: <laughs> yeah, adjacent and accepted as I participate on a show. Yeah um you know i I don't know i think that I think that we are in a cycle where we you know well, look we're living in a uh <laughs> interesting and unbelievable, unbelievable times that are not that um dissimilar to hundred and fifty years ago. it just looks different right and um and whether it's it's look I just read this amazing book that just really and I talked to you guys about it that just really confronted me with a lot um called uh no more Heroes about the white savior complex and um and again I think about things that are confronting and and the the way that that again racism is just is, is so so deeply rooted in the the history and the culture of our country and if you think about it From that perspective, and you draw a line from why she has to say unapologetically black um, to why these shows are not existing, or there's so few of them, or the writers' rooms or the executives look the way that they do, it's not that far of a line. Um, And so I think really we have to look at the systemic issues, right, that are why these shows aren't on the air and continue to make progress, unfortunately, in small ways and in some ways, big ways, like what Jane the Virgin in One Day at a Time did. You know, I personally believe someone's going to snatch one day at a time and put it back on TV. I don't, and, you know, I think that's going to happen. And I think it'd be, it'd be crazy for a network to not do that um, because it isn't just about the bottom line. And when a show does perform well year after year or when ratings do go up, I think there's an opportunity for these big billion dollar corporations that are at the intersection between tech and creativity um, to stand up and say, well, that technically maybe could be a write-off in one way, and in another way, uh, we could be inspiring millions and millions and millions of people and be doing good, right? So I think that we just have to look at things in two different ways. There's a double bottom line that's possible. Um, but in terms of why something's not on the air, I can't speak to that as a, as a straight white guy, but I can tell you that I'm very grateful that... No, none of us can really speak that, to that, ultimately. Yeah, thing, but, I right? can't, but I can <laughs> tell you I'm very grateful that the network that I'm on was willing to take the risk and and put that show on because I think so much good came from it. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: yeah. um, I don't, I mean, we're all, I think in, how many shows are like, there are many, so many shows on this peak television. Um, and now it's all about, you know, niche, 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 <laughs> Niche programming, um in a way. Um except for a Network who tries to um serve a lot more. Uh I mean there are shows like Grand Hotel that's coming out I think I think this mm-hmm. month. Um they're doing a reboot of Party of Five, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was a brilliant reboot. Um uh, having these be kids of um immigrants who crossed the border and now they're by themselves. I'm like, okay, somebody is actually thinking. Um <laughs> As far as a reboot is concerned, um, but I think is again, it's more, well, like what you said. It's more of um, executives, um, showrunners, creators like ourselves uh, fighting the good fight. I remember when I switched um, agents, I said to them, "I want to be uh, start doing shows that are mind shows that matter. I want to be on a friend show who feel strongly about uh, what they're doing um, in creating these different characters." Um, and I can't remember the third one. Or, or like something where it's like, you know, women. Those have been my major thing of, of changing the narratives about how you see um, uh, them. And I've, you know, managed to be able to do that. Uh, shows like Shots Fired, um, that Gina Prince Bythewood and Reggie Bythewood put out, um, Unsolved, Tupac and Biggie, which may not seem like, but it was like back in the day of hip hop, that was a major thing. Um, and it was. And on Netflix, it's been incredible how many people have called me, you know, uh, and how we approached uh, that story as well. Um, So I think it's it's really putting all those stories out. And now it seems that there are more, it's more of an appetite to get it out there because people are like, you know, with um, uh, intellectual properties, you know, they're like, you know, really like working it. I think it just, it needs to be pushed. When I was here for South by Southwest, I had 10 students. Um, none of them African-American, and, like, how do I get my stories, you know, out there and use my voice? And that made me feel good because I realized, okay, now we have a next generation that's going to fight, and we're, like, basically, you know, the door is cracked open, and we're going to, like, it's not going back. It's not closing. We're here, so. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I wonder if we could expand a little bit about representation. I'm going to focus right now just a little bit in front of the uh, camera talent, but then just talk more broadly. Darren Chris recently stated he would no longer play uh, take a gay actor's place in a gay role. Um, sounds laudable, but, hey, I'm a gay man. If I only played gay roles, I wouldn't be working that much. Um, you know, Would a show like The Good Doctor have been made if Freddie Highmore weren't in the lead as opposed to an autistic actor? Um Without this representation, though, how are you authentic? I mean, this is a very silly example of this, but, you know, Hassan Minnage just made news simply by telling us how to pronounce his name because we'd all been pronouncing his name incorrectly. How do you guys approach representation, you know, in terms of casting, in terms of your talent in the writer's room, your below-the-line crew, anything? Just thoughts on that.
2: Um, Well, as far as David Makes Man, that was like a major thing for us just to uh, put together a writer's room um that represented I came I mean I've been in this business for a while. I'm not gonna say how many years because oh I'm like, I'm growing backwards like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um but you know a lot of times I was either the only um woman, the only African American, and a lot of times I was like, oh we're gonna get a twofer, the only black woman. So um you know recently in in um shows there's been more of a representation within which only helps you in the telling of stories because of everybody's, you know... And not all people of color have the same experiences, which I've, you know, some people think so. So it's very interesting when you get all these different conversations going on. Um, and also um, being able to below the line, um, uh, higher in that same way. Because, again, you get different perspectives. People bring their, their truths and their own worlds even in below the line. So that's why I think it's personally important so it does not get homogenized all the time as you tell these stories. And every time you see the story that people connect to, um, whether it be, I remember the big thing with Lost. The casting in Lost was brilliant, and, and lightning struck, and everything gelled. For the first time, you had people not looking the most beautiful, and every you know, but they look like you. They reflected different people in the world, um, which was fantastic. But it is what the world looks like. I think Shonda Rhimes always says that. I, I wrote a story that was reflected, or the people that you know um, that are in the world, and I think that needs to be more of that. You know, as we go forward. Yeah, it's. I
6: mean, the, it's. Been woven into the fabric of Grey's since long before I got there. Mm -hmm. In terms of in front of the camera and below the line, like in every capacity, and our writers' room is as diverse a room as possible, and not in like not in a token check off a box. Like there, there is just a really expansive group of people with a lot of lived experience that are. It's all over the map. I, you know, me personally, I'm a person living with cancer so i am a person living with a disability and when people start listing inclusivity and start listing element, a bit like people with disabilities is the very last thing that's on the list if it's mentioned at all mm-hmm. and i've had people who are younger writers that have come up to me and asked me and said that they were people of color who with a disability and they, their agent said um, the fact that you are African American will help because because the, they're looking for people of color in that room. But don't tell them about the disability because that might make that might make them doubt whether or not you can do your job. Um, I've had more than one person come up and tell me that, like you know. And meanwhile, I work on a show where they're like, "Great, can you want to make it a storyline?" I'm like, "Okay," and then. Great, because I don't, because in in my world, I have never, like, I have never seen on television a version of cancer that is my version, where it's either, most of the time, it's either cured or, you know, cured or dead. There isn't the person that's walking around living with it, as I have for seven years. So we got to do that story, because there's a person that had that experience in that room, and it didn't necessarily check off a box, but that's true of you know, that can be said of a million episodes on Grays and because of the life stories that um, people tell. E- the crew members saying, I had this medical thing happen to me or, oh, do you know that there's a bias about pain and how it's interpreted, how doctors respond to people complaining about pain based on the color of the skin of the person in front of them. Mm-hmm. And we have the opportunity to tell those stories and to also learn about it from every single member of that team.
3: Thank you. Anybody else want to add to that? I'm going to turn it over to the audience. Do we have any questions from the audience? We do. I think people are lining up a little bit, actually. Good morning. Thank you guys so much for being here. This has been an amazing session. Like I'm, I'm inspired. I'm enlightened. Thank you so much for getting up and making our day so great and starting off the festival this morning. At the beginning of camp... Emily and Caitlin challenged us to look to the next person we didn't know and ask them what their favorite television show was. So all week I've been doing that and connecting with people and realizing how impactful TV is on all of us and how it's like the connective tissue between us. And while I do want to know what all of your favorite television shows are, what I'm most interested in knowing is what television show has made an impactful moment on who you are today, past or present. But what has empowered you or impacted you as a person? Huh.
5: Saint Elsewhere, hundred percent. I mean that I grew up watching that show, and it—I only realized it in retrospect—it taught me humanity, it taught me drama, it taught me—I mean, sort of exactly you know what Gray's is doing now for the issues that are at the fore at the moment. Saint Elsewhere dove into everything and contextualized it, and I really—I grew up. Loving that show, and then had the benefit of one of the gentlemen who was you know Tom Fontana behind it. he became my mentor, so it was like my dream come true, frankly, I got to learn from him and you know write on Oz for my first show, and killed a lot of men um, uh, but uh, but no saying elsewhere. I mean it was that time I feel very blessed to have grown up, and the funny thing for me, though is I watched all of that knowing I wanted to be a writer, but not ever thinking the TV was written. Um, I thought movies or novels, and it just never like for whatever reason in my stupid brain, it didn't seep in until later, and I was like. Oh, this TV thing is great, but honestly, to answer your question, it was saying elsewhere for me all day long.
6: Um, Six feet under to oh, me yeah. was was unreal. Like in the and just the premise of figuring out how to live in the face of death. Everything that you were talking about of, with your work that that was something that from day one I was like, "What is this show?" And the, I remember being so sad. Because I was coming out of grad school being like, I'm not going to get good enough, fast enough to be on this show. Like, there's like, I just remember being like, come on. Like, I wish we could just make that show go on for, like, a lot more seasons. Because, like, maybe I'll get there. Um, but, yeah, that that one's still the number one for me. Oh, my God. Cool. I mean, like
2: I said, I got into this business because I didn't see a lot of people reflective of me other than comedies like Different World and were just amazing. And, and Living Single. Those were great shows. Drama-wise, I think really what hit me would be two shows, I think, um, uh, The Wire and E.R. Mm -hmm. Um, Those were, and actually before The Wire, Homicide. Mm -hmm. Um, Because David Simon was, the. I mean, because what I loved about him was he would go to these places, Baltimore, and live. I mean, and know these people, like, inside out. Um, So I think that was the way that I want to tell a story, when you know people inside out and using a little bit of yourself within these different characters because that's what people connect to are the characters, even more than the stories, but you will follow them anywhere.
4: Uh, for, it's, uh, so many. Uh, but, but for some reason, what I've been coming back to over and over again uh, was Quantum Leap.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and
4: I realized recently that that taught me Empathy at a Mm -hmm. very young age. Um, The idea of, like, putting on somebody's, like, being in somebody's skin and seeing how, like, as a white person, what it's like to be actually a black person and how you're treated. Like, it was, you know, I've been trying. I've been wanting to remake that show forever. And... You can't get the rights, but like I've I tried.
3: I would do it's anything great. to be... That a, that's a reboot I would be in I would do anything
4: <laughs> to to produce it or be in it, but that that was one that recently I was like, oh, my God, and I'm also a sci-fi. You know, I, yeah. Yeah.
3: Could you bring Scott back?
4: Good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah,
3: thank you. Sorry, we may only have time for one more question. I'm sorry, guys. Hi, my name is Lori. I'm with the Muslim Public Affairs Council's Hollywood Bureau. We're also part of... Uh, um, a collective called Storyland Partners that has a, has groups with like the ACLU, Color of Change, Define American, and we consult on TV shows, films, digital platforms, all of that. And I want to thank you all for being trailblazers and for inviting us all into your writers' rooms and to, your, to work on your shows and to consult on your shows to make things more authentic. I, on the weekends, I work in Tijuana at the shelters and the migrant um, in, with the caravan. And I'm wondering if, because to me that's one of the most misunderstood crises in this country right now. And I actually flipped my Uber driver on it the other day, just with personal stories from the, sh- the shelters. And I'm wondering if any of you are featuring any storylines um, regarding the immigration crisis or if you know of shows that are featuring this. Because it really does take, as we all know, personal stories to change minds. Yes, very
4: true. Um, I'm currently developing a show that's centered around um, uh, immigrant women and children fleeing um, domestic violence and general mutilation and all kinds of things, seeking asylum. Um, uh, currently in development based on a real organization that's doing the work and hopefully there'll be some networks or people out there that'll take that risk or we'll just do it ourselves because we have to.
6: Um, we just had a pretty big storyline towards the end of the season that involved a patient that was not being treated because when they were held in d- held in detention they were given an acid instead of being taken care of for huge bowel obstructions and cancer and all kinds of trouble and our people, our main people bucked the system or tried to mess with it and put someone else's name on it and took a risk because we felt like it's not enough to just say this is something that I care about. People have to put themselves on the line. Um, you know, Nazi Germany, there are people that are breaking laws, hiding Jews in corners, so it's, it's something that they have to do. And we have, you know, our Meredith Gregg got fired at the end of the season for fudging records and trying to write what she thought was fundamentally wrong. And it's something that's going to have consequences moving forward.
3: Great. I'm sorry I took up so much time asking questions. We have so many people here
6: lining up. Um,
3: but thank you again, panelists, for being with us this morning. Really, Thank, really thank you all it. for coming today. Thank you guys really for coming. appreciate the stories you're telling. Thank you.
0: Thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, we really appreciate it. I am here with Justin Baldoni and Elizabeth Finch. Do you like to go by Finchy? That's what everyone refers what to you as. Everyone and ends
6: up calling me whether we really? start. Yeah, first, whether we start that way, and it will always end that way. You will too.
4: We just exchanged information, so I'm putting you in the phone as Finchie. Finchy.
6: That's why that.
0: everyone refers to you that way, and you never know. You're like, is that like an insider friend thing? When do you get to that point?
6: When do most people get to that point? Uh, about a week in. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, we're about oh, an I hour. Should, in. I should wait. We <laughs> can get it. there. I I'm think if we do, do a, a panel week. together or a podcast, this is just a straight We just definition. went deep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, Justin, I want to ask you just a little bit about Jane the Virgin ending. We don't. We. This is not a spoiler festival. I don't want to know what. Ha- I do want to know what happens, but. Um, I just want to know about the process of the final season and filming the final season. And what's that, what that's been like for you guys in wrapping this up.
4: Uh, it was, it was bittersweet, but I think that, you know, we all knew that it was coming to an end and we had the great privilege of not being canceled and being told that it was coming to an end. So our show creator, Jenny had kind of prepared us for it and it was always an arc. And I think all great things should end. And, uh, and sometimes, except Grey's Anatomy. Um,
0: <laughs> that needs to keep, that should going, keep going Keep going and keep going. That,
4: that's going to keep going. My, my kids are going to watch Grey's Anatomy Excellent. And, and Hologram. Um, but, uh, but it's really nice because, you know, I had kind of fallen into the show and I wasn't focusing on acting. And the show has uh, given me such a great platform to do what my heart really is driving me to do, and that's tell these types of stories and make films and direct and produce television and I think that you know um five years of being on that show and and getting to have that platform and and see how tv could be done and meet such incredible people and all the things that came with it um I I know I was ready for what's next um but it doesn't change also like the nostalgia for the moment of knowing that like oh my god we love these people we're friends. This is the end of this. Oh, my God. I'm never going to play Raphael again unless Netflix brings us back in 10 years for, like, a Gilmore Girls-esque reunion. Uh, Veronica Mars. Um, Veronica Mars. You never know, right? Anything Um,
6: is possible. Anything is possible. I don't know if I'll still— I don't know if in
4: 10 years I'm going to look good in tight clothes like that, but we'll see. Um, But, yeah, so it was a really sweet way to end it, and I think hopefully it satisfies fans and— um, It's just it was so beautifully done, and yeah, it was it was tough, but in a great way.
0: How do you, for both of you? Because I mean, Vinci, you've now been writing on Grey's Anatomy for how many years? This is year six, and yeah. so you have uh,
4: for a year longer than our old. <laughs> I
0: <society describing. laughs> Um, Grey's Anatomy has lost characters over the years, and uh, that's got to be quite the process too. So, both as an actor letting go of your character and how you say goodbye to a character you've been playing and as a writer when a character is no longer on the show what's that process like saying goodbye to a character you've been playing or a character you've been writing
6: i i struggle with it because i'm such a tv nerd like i there are tv deaths that i'm not over that i had nothing to do with like i still at Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Six Feet Under. Like, I had a really difficult time. <laughs> like, I saw Peter Krause in an elevator like two days after that episode aired, and I was like, um, "I'm really struggling with this situation because <laughs> I, I just get so attached." So, as a fan, I'm attached, and as a writer, I get, I, I get really sad about it. It's really hard to say goodbye. Um, but people have left the, sh- you know, it's it's how a show can last for, yeah. 16 seasons is by having that change and having a new dynamics that emerge from that way. So it's a really sad process for me personally, but can there also people that we work really closely with that I adore um, and then not having them as part of that. I mean they're always a part of the family, but not seeing them every day is always really hard to do, but I mean it's part of the game.
0: <laughs> Justin, did you have to go through anything in letting go of Raphael? Did you was there some sort of process of
4: or are you still in the middle no, of that? I think it was just I think it was, again it was, it was just a lot of gratitude for the opportunity to play him, you know because he was very messy over the five years and grew a lot and and I found there to be an interesting correlation between my journey uh, as a man and my work with masculinity mm-hmm. and feminism and the character I was playing and what he was projecting and his journey and i just I just really enjoyed the way it all wrapped up and um, and the arc of the character. So, I, you know, I felt very good about saying goodbye. But, of course, it, you know, I'm a, I'm a very emotional person. So it was extremely emotional uh, for me. Uh, there was often, there was a few interviews I talked about it and just I couldn't get through it. Because I was like, I just have so much gratitude for yeah. the character. The fact that he was written by women, mostly. Um, so very dynamic and taken care of and protected. Um, which you don't normally see in a character, love interest, you know. Lead yeah. Like that, it's when uh, and maybe controversial, but when written by men, yeah, interestingly enough. Um, so I just yeah, so it was it was sweet, it was very sweet.
0: So you guys were both on a panel presented by the Television Academy, powerful TV. Um, Kate and I believe deeply, deeply about the power of television and that what people see on screen affects the way you see the world in ways that I don't think people always... Well, most time, I don't think people consciously know. And that's why, even at this festival, the conversations we're having, we want this to be a place where change starts in the industry and to have people actually talking about how to do that and why it matters. And I know you both deeply care about that. So I want to know from you... What is it that you think makes TV so powerful and how it affects people as they're watching it?
4: Benji?
6: I mean, it's it's literally in your own home. These are characters that not only live for a really long time versus a movie where you're going to a movie theater, it's outside of your space, you're with people the television or the screen or whatever device and fun thing is most typically in your own home you've invited that person into your personal space while you are wearing your pajamas and eating your popcorn and doing whatever you're doing (laughs) but it's and it's also the duration that you get to spend time with a character and you get to see their evolution so you have that opportunity to really connect with someone and really feel like you know like we have fans that come up and no, I—I I mean, I know Grey's Anatomy backwards and forwards in my head because I'm a weirdo about TV. I could do the same thing with The West Wing. <laughs> um, but people come up to to us all the time and feel like they know it better sometimes than I do because it's been in, like they've just internalized it, and I did it—I did it as a fan. I, did, you know, I didn't work on the show for ten years. I didn't. So, and I was in love with it, and I just felt like I knew those people, and they were just whole and incredible and when you feel like they're in your home Mm. and you've spent 10 years with these people and then I got to spend six more (laughs) and going and keep going
4: yeah and building on that I think I think television I think art in general um but specifically television is a tool right I think a tv really could be also seen as an empathy machine and, um, and a tool, as we know, can be used for good or can be used for bad. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's very, you know, it, it's the pulpit. Yeah. And, um, and I just believe that we have an opportunity always when you have that massive platform to, and, and this is why I said a responsibility, right?
0: I was going to ask, and yeah. some people don't want to take the responsibility for what they're putting on TV.
4: Well, I, again, and I don't even know if it's that they don't want to take responsibility, I think that when you mix art and commerce and it becomes a livelihood, then it's very complicated, especially when you mix in the fear of our industry and the fact that it's feast or famine for so many creatives and that you are entering an industry that uh, doesn't necessarily value the why of why you're doing anything and is all so much more about the bottom line and the what and the how, right? So I think for, for a lot of people, it's not even that they that they don't care. I think that they forget. Yeah. You know the the, the altruism and the reasons why we'd started the, in this business is so easily forgotten when you are doing anything you can to be seen as a woman in a writer's room with a disability, as you yes. talked about, right? And it's like, well, I just need I need to get in the room for so many people, or I just I just I, need, I I need my voice heard, or I need a show, or oh, I got a show, but then it didn't get it didn't go, and then. It went, but then it didn't get a second season. And so there's just this struggle. And in that struggle, it's so easy to lose your why and forget like, okay, well, what is the why of my why? Well, why do I want to make TV? Right? Well, I want to make TV to make a difference. Okay, well, why do you want to make a difference? And that second why, I truly believe, keeps you grounded and in it and centered and focused and allows you to have the detachment that you need to be rejected a hundred times so that your story can be told in the right way and so that you know that what you're putting out in the world will have more of a positive effect than a negative effect. And I said this on the panel, but if we were to just go and do our own focus groups and ask for feedback, the difficult feedback about the content that we're putting out in the world, even if it wasn't what we wanted to hear and we had a healthy sense of detachment from what we're creating, then we would be, I think, far more willing to create stuff that matters. Um, and to be willing to change course or direction if it would, if it could potentially be perceived as harmful to a group, and that only comes from like real, intense self-examination, and not depending on, honestly, on the entertainment industry standards of success.
0: With um, Wayfair, you are creating this amazing new content that you are putting your heart and soul into, and probably having a lot of no's and a lot of incredible yeses and telling these really hard stories. What is it that keeps you going? I mean, you talked about that why, but when you look deep inside yeah. and you're like, this is, this is the center that I come back to.
4: What's to the why going? of the why, right? Yeah. I believe that if you ask why three times, you'll get to the true core of anything. <laughs> um, and for, for me and for the team at Wayfair, it's not even an option like there, there's been so many opportunities presented to change course and to make content that is the easier way you know the easier content to sell um, but you know when you when you tell stories like we started telling which is life or death right we are this isn't reality television we are quite literally uh, taking time from people who have I mean, we all have a finite amount of time, but three months, six months, a year left to live. And they're giving us their time. And we're then in turn telling their stories and doing the opposite of reality television. We're not manipulating it in any way. We're showing it and we're showing the beauty that who they are and how they're living. And then we're giving their time to an audience who's choosing to give us their time. When you tell these types of stories, you realize like there is no other path for us because we believe that time is finite, and we have only a tiny bit. It's our most valuable resource, nice. and so we have to be respectful of the time that our audience is giving us, and also, at the end of our lives, of what we're spending our time doing, you know? Because nobody wants to look back and have all the regrets that the majority of people have, the top 10 regrets. Like, I did this, I worked too much, I didn't spend time with my family, I didn't enjoy my work, my work was a, you know? All of those things are very, very common, and we have a chance in this day and age, in this very unique day and age, to actually live lives that we can be proud of and these are the lessons I've learned from the dying so all we're doing is applying those lessons and understanding that like well if death is the great equalizer it's not the network it's the fact (laughs) that like one day I'm not going to be here anymore so what am I choosing to do how am I spending my time what are the stories we're telling and having that healthy sense of detachment from rejection Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day if I get rejected it's okay I still have my family right but if I lose my family in the pursuit of success, then I'm making a mistake. So that's what keeps me grounded in my why and my faith and my belief that, like, we're here to be of service. That's really it. We're here to be of service, and our gifts can be used in that way.
0: You both are part of TV shows that mean a lot to a lot of people. Has there been a TV show in your past that you've either worked on, other than these, or a show that you watched that meant that thing to you, that you think audiences, in the same way your
6: shows mean to audiences now? We were talking about this in the panel, but yeah. Six six Feet Under, to me, yeah. has always been, I mean, aside from it being an incredible television show... Um, so ahead of its time. It's So ahead of its time, and so, so Alan Ball. And so uh, people who are... Trying so repressed and so locked up, and trying to figure out a way to live while you are showing people who are dead at the same time—like people, like just the basic premise of people that are the most that are living the least—that are actually burying people all day long and have to figure out how to live—is was friggin' fascinating to me and dark and funny and. It wasn't messagey. It wasn't, but it was really just exploring deep, deep humanity and how screwed up we all are, and how human we all are. And that is something that I really gravitated towards from the first episode. And watching people say, like, they're watching people do some pretty terrible things, and then figuring figuring out how to find their way back to themselves. And that nothing, no growth, human growth is linear. And they just learned a lesson and two seconds later screwed it up again. (laughs) And then they messed up their lives this way sideways. And it just, it kept asking these really twisted conversation, twisted questions. And I I just was in love with it. And I still am. And so
4: uncomfortable and (laughs) confronting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think, again, it's like it was so human in the messiness, which we respond to because we are human. Mm -hmm. And we forget, like, you know we don't have to be creating these things that are so far out there that we can't relate to them or we or so often or not, we're told, and I'm sure you're told from, from the higher ups that things have to be dumbed down or you have to be presented, things have to be presented in a certain way. And I just feel like we're not giving our audience the chance to show their humanity and their, and the fact that they are human, which they are really good at and they get it. And we are far more intelligent than I think we give audiences credit for. Um, no matter where they're from. Yes. You know, and I think that's the next step is hopefully we'll have a new level, you know, a, a new type of executive and the executives will look different and the studios will look different and we'll believe in the, the power of our audience to be able to digest complex and interesting, mm-hmm. nuanced television where qu- questions are asked and where empathy is, pro- is shown in a unique way and, and where we can show the messiness and messages without being heavy-handed or preachy. Um, that's like, a, what's an exciting prospect, you know?
0: Um, last question. What show do you go to for a pick me up? We've had a bad day. You just need to put something on that makes you laugh. That makes you feel
6: good. Do you have a show? It can be a movie. If you don't have a TV show, mom, I'm on CBS. Well, I just freaking love it. It just, it's pretty much the same episode every time. And I want it. <laughs> Like, I want that episode every time. I mean, they're like, everybody in it is a freaking genius, but I just, I want the comfort of, I know what I'm getting, and it's really, really freaking funny. And they all, again, it's the same thing of like, they are all laughing at how dark and screwed up they are, and human and messy. And it's, but it's done with such humor that, hands down, every time I go home, I like watch an episode or watch an old episode. I don't know. When that started, but mm. yeah,
4: I don't have one. I I just it's funny. I just I just go to, you know, I'll turn on, I'll either online or I'll do a search or I'll go on and just look for something funny. You, do you, and you look and for I've something
0: found, comfort or something new, something you've seen a lot um, of or something you want to discover something no, new? No, it's it's.
4: I'm also I'm also a really bad TV watcher because I I truthfully it's really tricky to find the space to also yeah. consume that much when you know, I have a wife and two children and I also want to be a dad, but you know um, what I found that's interesting and I'll, I'll change the question a little bit is being on a show that people say that about, mm-hmm. I can tell you is really a massive honor um, because when you can, when you can get a chance to play a character or be on or create a show that people go to for that, for that comfort, I go to your show really, for that. It, it, it's really a beautiful, interesting thing. But, I mean, I look at... You know what's funny? I recently... Like, French Prince of Bel-Air. I was yes. like, oh, my God. That was like... <laughs> I felt like home at some oh, point. Oh, wow. And I watched that show. And it was so funny. And, I gotta go back there. <laughs> and I remember being, like, you know, 12, 13 years old, coming home from school and having no friends and having nobody to talk to or hang out with, and that was my friend. And, and that's a really important thing, is to have content like that and shows like that that, uh, that can make you feel good. But I have... I have a whole bunch. I just look for things in the moment. It's like music. I don't yes. have like one style of yep, music, absolutely. but it's like, I need something that makes me feel like this. And so I will go now Get that one. in this you know, in this instant on demand society. I can find that somewhere. Even if it's on YouTube or it's a comedy special or something like
0: that. Sometimes I just need a really good cry and so I'll put on an episode of Grey's Anatomy. I'm like, I just need like, I need that therapeutic, but also hopeful cry. And I'm like, I'm just going to go put on an episode that I know is going to bring all those emotions. Oh yeah. I only have feelings
4: through television. Like that's (laughs) the only way that I have. (laughs)
6: So (laughs) what are you going to do? Well then five
4: feet apart is for you. You're gonna have, oh, you can going to have you two go. hours of a cry. I can't anytime. wait to see it.
0: I cannot wait. I've seen the billboards and the posters and June, I'm.
4: June 12th, I think, right? June 12th, it's out uh, everywhere on DVD.
0: Then I'm ready for it. That's going to be my reward after the festival. And there you go. Two
4: hours of just sobbing. get a whole <laughs> that of does. It does.
0: That will be very therapeutic. Thank you for that. I'm already going to thank you, gonna you for happen. that gift. Thank you guys so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, please come back. Yeah. Congratulations later.
6: on a beautiful festival. Thank you so thank much. You guys. doing so much good. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thanks. Bye.
0: The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and AJ Myers, along with our audio partner, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount on badges exclusive to TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast, and stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.